This is At Home with ADTS, a show that presents topics of interest to older adults, individuals with disabilities, and their caregivers. At Home highlights the services and programs offered by Aging, Disability, and Transit Services of Rockingham County. Welcome to this edition of At Home with ADTS, a program about supports and services offered by Aging, Disability, and Transit Services of Rockingham County. I'm Ashley Cooper, Director of Community Outreach and Development at ADTS. ADTS has been in operation in Rockingham County since 1973. Our goal is to assist and to link older adults, people with disabilities, and their caregivers with information, opportunities, and services that promote and enhance the quality of life, as well as working to meet the local transportation needs of Rockingham County residents. We would like to give a special thank you to the United Way of Rockingham County for their long time and generous support of our Meals on Wheels program. United Way of Rockingham County brings together local people to help raise local dollars to meet local needs, and we thank everyone who's, who's contributed over the years. Today we have Natalie Leary from the Duke Dementia Family Support Program joining us. Um, she serves as the family consultant for the Central North Carolina Project Care Program. So I'm going to bring Natalie in and have her introduce herself and tell us a little bit about herself and the program at Duke. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me today, Ashley. So um, I am one of the social workers at the Duke Dementia Family Support Program. We've been around since 1980, and we work with folks who are caring for someone living with changes in memory and thinking or the individual who is living um, with dementia. So we have the ability to work with, with both, and we provide no-cost uh, consultations, educations, and various programs and support groups as well for, for both the care partner and the person living with dementia. Um, there is no requirement that you have any affiliation with Duke Health in any way. And as I mentioned, all of the services that we're able to provide are at no cost. And you mentioned um, North Carolina Project Care. Our team also serves as the central office for the Project Care program, which is a state-funded program. Wonderful. You guys do wonderful things with such a small amount of staff, and I look forward to diving into that in future episodes. Yeah. Um, but today we're going to talk about family conversations. They're so difficult to have. And, it, uh, you know, uh, I always remind myself that whenever I interact with one with a caregiver, I'm just interacting with that caregiver. And, you know, there's a lot of family dynamics that go into um caring for someone, um, and just in general with families. So um, we know that caregiving is a taxing responsibility, and I often say it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Mm -hmm. um, and throughout the years, there are some key ingredients I find that help caregivers um, be successful at caregiving. And one of them is reaching out for support. Um, and the first people you should reach out to is your family if they're available. So um, we're going to kind of talk through what family conversations should look like, how to have a successful conversation with your family, um, how to start the conversation, how to have a plan, so on and so forth. So let's get started. Um, so as I said, the first thing we should do is start the conversation. And I think a lot of times people start that conversation, unfortunately, during a time of crisis and not necessarily during a time when everything is just going swimmingly well. So um, when, when someone's ready to start a conversation, what should they um, be planning for and thinking about? Hmm. I, I would think the first thing to sort of 
think through is who should be at the table? Um, who should we be having this conversation with? And so that might be our nuclear family. It might be, you know, um, parents and adult children. It might be an extended family member, some extended family members that are pretty important. Sometimes there aren't family members, you know, blood or biological family members, but there might be some of our community family members that we would want to bring to the table. And then one of the, the questions that often will come up is, well, if, you know, my family member is living with dementia, should they be at the table for this family meeting or for this conversation? And just like any good social worker, I'll say it depends, right? I feel like that's the classic social work answer. And here's what I mean by that. Um, definitely uh, the person living with dementia is valuable and has the, the, the right um, to contribute to the conversation. But sometimes it is actually going to create more stress and anxiety for them um, then may be worth it. It may not, it may be too stressful and too anxiety provoking. So we have to just sort of look at the kind of case by case. Is mom, is dad, is my husband able to sit at the table and have some pretty hard conversations? Or do we think that's going to leave them feeling a little more anxious? So you kind of have to gauge that um, based on your, your family member's current situation. And then looking at, you know, siblings, are you local? Are you long distance? Um, and as you mentioned, Ashley, we all come to the table with our family history too. So when you and I get to talk to families, we're rolling in, you know, after years of whatever foundation has been laid for how this family interacts, whatever relational history is there. So we want to honor and respect that. So kind of getting a feel for what siblings or what extended family members should be at the table. I think that is the, the starting point. Yes, absolutely. And then I find there's often like maybe a questions you should ask. Like, first of all, <clears throat> you know, sometimes you come in, you haven't seen that person in a long time. And so you recognize really strong deficiencies. Um, a lot of support is more needed, where somebody who's been there every day um, may not notice that because, you know, they've been dealing with it and it's just been kind of rolling into each other. I call that the, the boil frog, right? Um, and so I think it's really important in conversations, and would you agree that they need to say, what is needed now? You know, what, what, you know, what kind of support or what can I do now to help you? I completely agree. I think, you know, in a different way, we're seeing some of that now as folks have spent maybe 14 months um, away from the individual, you know, in person from the, you know, the family member living with dementia, they've maybe, maybe even had daily phone calls, maybe phone calls that are 15 minutes. And then you get in person and you're like, wait a minute, like things are not where I thought they were because having a 15 minute phone conversation, I can keep maybe my social grace is intact a little bit. I can, it requires a different kind of energy. So maybe you're not getting a good read of what's going on. And I think for primary caregivers, when the, the person who's not local, who's not involved in the day-to-day -day says, is mom really that bad? Like mom seems fine to me. It can be a pretty invalidating experience. So I think, yes, look, looking at the local primary contacts who are getting that day-to-day -day extended amount of time to say, what are you, what are you noticing? What are you seeing? And trusting them 
as the expert on the family member that's local, you know, that, you, that we what you've seen a lot of changes happening. What are you noticing? And so I think that that's a great way to start the conversation. I completely agree. I think sometimes when people come in from out of town, um, they kind of since they're not everything is so fresh and raw to them that they want to and they have such a limited amount of time with somebody, they want to make changes really quickly. And I think that's really important to sit down and say, what do you need? What do you support? Like, what? how can I support you versus this is what we need to do. And sometimes yeah. it just that stops the conversation immediately from starting. So yeah. um, I think that's really important just to kind of if you're somebody who's coming in, just to kind of sit back and listen and ask. Yeah. And I think that's hard, too, because the other piece of this is your own grief. Like, yeah. I don't want this to be true. I don't want it to be true that my parent has dementia. A, because that, that's really hard to see someone that we love go through that. You might be thinking about your own you know, trajectory and what that might mean for you. And so not only is it just absence or distance, it can also just be sort of a survival, a way of, of avoiding and not wanting to know because it is really painful to see. So all of that's understandable. So it takes a lot of courage, I think, to say, what do you need? Or can you tell me what, what does it really look like in the day to day? And just being ready to hear whatever that primary, you know, local person shares with you, that takes a lot of bravery, I think. I agree. I agree. And also add the other G word, which is guilt. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> man. I mean, guilt, we should, that's a great word. I mean, it's a terrible word, but it's a great thing to bring up because I think in the caregiving journey, whether the person lives at home with you, whether they live alone, they're able to safely live alone, whether they live in a long-term care community, guilt is the unwanted companion of the entire caregiving journey. This, this belief that I should be doing more or could I be doing more? Um, so it is, it is a, I think it's really a bully. It's not really a companion, but it's just a bully that hangs over a lot of folks, their heads every day. So yes, mm -hmm. we must mention guilt. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So another step or another goal for the family conversation is defining roles, yeah. right? There has to be somebody who's going to be the primary. Um, and, um, there has to be somebody who's going to do something else and X, Y, and Z. So from you, why is it important to decide um, roles and responsibilities? I think just to expose it and to even be able to say who can do what, who is willing to do what. You know, we bring to the table our own personal life responsibilities, our own health journeys, like folks may be battling their own progressive illnesses or they may have their own financial limitations. Or So it just sort of says hey, I'm not planning to do this alone. It is not my goal to do this alone. So I'm just curious, what is it that you think you can contribute? And then, and then also acknowledging that that may shift and change a little bit throughout the journey. But where we are right now, what is it that you feel like you can give? Is it giving of your time, of, your, of yourself, of your energy, of your money? Like, where is it that you think that you can contribute? And then it just lets us know you know, honestly, who's going to play and who's not going to play? Um, because if there, if someone is in a position where they're not able or willing to participate in the caregiving journey, as painful as that is, and that's something else to process for the primary caregiver, it's also maybe good to know I'm not going to, 
I'm not going to spin my wheels over there because it's not going to give me much reward. Um, but I'm going to just keep keep working with the folks who are able to contribute in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And that reminds me to say that, you know, family isn't necessarily, as you mentioned earlier, brother, a sibling or a spouse. It could be friends. It could be aunts, uncles. Um, so sometimes when you cast that net for the family conversation, think pretty broad because I think that you'd be surprised that, you know, some people will bubble up that you're like, oh, well, I didn't think about that. And they're like, well, you know, I'm retired. I don't mind doing this a couple of days a week. Um, you know, what can I do to support you? So, um, so definitely. And that leads me to my next thought of, um, and you've mentioned this in a prior episode about really forming your team, right? Mm-hmm. Your board of what I think you call them board of directors or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I think that that's really important um, to have a team. It doesn't have to be um, a large team. It could be a small team, but it definitely, you need to have some people who can support you. Can you explain a little bit more about the role of or the importance of having a team? Yeah. I mean, I think about even us professionally, ADTS, the Duke Dementia Family Support, like there is a need for all of us at the table as professionals, because there are a variety of situations and and needs that arise. And so we are all needed. And so I think about that as well in the in the family setting, like it's important that you have an idea of you have multiple people, because the goal here is that we're going to be able to share the load and not just ask one person or, you know, three people to bear the weight of this caregiving role. Because, I mean, there are a couple of things. My crystal ball is broken. I don't know about yours. So I can never let families know, hey, the length of your caregiving is going to be about three to five years, or, you know, this is how long this is going to go. And so folks, you need people to help you. You know, you mentioned the marathon. I think about a relay race too, where there are moments where we can, you know, pass a piece of this off. Um, but in order to to do this, in order to keep going physically, emotionally, mentally, you will need, you're going to need support people. And so it's just really important to be able to, to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that lends itself to actually forming a plan, right? Yes. Figure out, you know, who's going to be on your team, um, what are their strengths, what are their limits, um, who's willing to step, and then you need to have a plan. And it needs to be in writing. Would you agree with that? I think, a, I guess, a plan in writing is great. And also, especially if it's a family or a friend that, you know, we've known well, having space to say, you know, what is our understanding of what mom or dad or husband or wife would have wanted? You know, did we, especially if someone's early in the diagnosis, like that is one way to sort of involve them. You know, what are, you know, what were their ultimate goals of care? You know, what was important to them? So even people just being able to talk about that, because oftentimes it would be common and understandable that mom or dad want this, but then you might find that there's a little bit of discord about that among the adult children, but being able to center it back on what we know to be true about the person who's now living with dementia, what would they have wanted? And that's our focus. It's not what you or I would want. It's what would they have wanted? And so I think having it in writing is great. And, you know, one of the pieces where I think that can get sticky is when, I mean, most of us, right, would say, I want to, I want to stay home. I mean, I want to live home until I am no longer living. This is where I want to be. And that is completely understandable. 
And sometimes it's not possible. So there are moments where for a variety of reasons, like we may have to deviate from the original wishes and intentions, but letting that be sort of our guide and our compass when it can be, what would this person have wanted? So getting a plan, um, you know, whether it's, this is our plan for the next three to six months, and then let's reevaluate, how's it going? Are you still able to do what you agreed to do? Have, has, have we noticed a change in the care needs? And so now we need a little more care. So once the plan is written down, keeping in mind, you'll need to revisit that with some frequency. It's not one and done, but maybe it's once a quarter. I mean, you got you work out what's best for you, but just revisiting it to say, okay, things have changed. What do we need to change about our approach? Right. Absolutely. Realizing it's a livable breathing document. Yeah. Stagnant. So absolutely. Um, another key component of working with a team is establishing communication. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, especially nowadays, you know, we all have Zoom or we have um, StreamYard. We have different platforms that enable us to pull together a group that maybe you would have to come in from out of town or be on a speakerphone. It just makes it complicated. Um, so, you know, would you agree that it's important to find the communication tool that works for you all, for your group, for your team? Yes. And I think um, in addition to, you know, joint calls, Skyping, Zooming, all the things that you can do now, I think also about like a Google calendar or a shared calendar on your phone where you are putting in the doctor's appointments that are scheduled so that you don't have to tell 13 people there's a doctor's appointment coming up. But everybody, if they wake up in the middle of the night and they're they're like, isn't that appointment today? They could just go to the calendar, the family group calendar, and they can take a look. You know, so I think beyond or in addition to video or phone communication, is there a calendar or another app that you can use to keep people updated Um, You know, sometimes it's sharing if you're comfortable, you know, if there's logins, making sure that folks have shared logins so they get their own level can check in and read doctor's notes or, you know, just things that will make it easier for you. But definitely figuring out a way to all be on the same page that is not as invasive as it doesn't require as much time Mm -hmm. as as, you know, having multiple conversations. So that would be something to kind of think through. And that might be also moving target. Like this isn't working for us anymore, but we're going to give it a try and see if it works. Another part of uh, having a plan and a team is maintaining um, or checking in with each other, right, on a regular basis. So not only are you kind of tracking, you also have a log, um, but to check in with one another to make sure that everybody's doing okay um, and that, you know, they're being honest about what, they're needing or not needing or what you agree to do and not necessarily are able to do. And, you know, um, I think with any time you have a team, good communication is really important. Clear communication is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, maintaining that open line of communication? Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think, um, you know, it's easy when you're caregiving to talk about the weeds of caregiving when you, you know, when we get together on zoom or we have a, a group chat, we're talking about the logistics and the the needs, but, you know, have we stopped to check in about what this feels like, you know, what this is, what it feels like to watch someone that we love walk through this disease process and what, where we feel like we're being robbed. And, 
you know, so taking a moment to check in about your, your feelings, which I know it's not always a fun thing to do. It's, it's, it's honestly, I think a protective factor sometimes to stay with the task, right. And to not take a little dive into how you're feeling Um, and not forgetting that there are other parts to who you are other than caregiving. So how's, how's your marriage? Like how's, how are things at your job? Like, taking time to check in about all the other aspects when you can. And that might not be every day. That might not be, you know, because there are other things to cover, but just being aware um, that maybe there are some other parts of your personal life that you feel like you're having to hit pause on and their feelings about that. So um, I think that type of communication is important if need be, because look, we all are in, we're in families and we know what that can be like sometimes. So do we need to bring in a third party to sort of mediate? You know, it may be an unofficial mediator. It might be someone from your faith community or a social worker from a clinic, or, you know, it could be a geriatric care manager, but do we need a neutral third party? Not because we're bickering maybe, but just to help orient us and to help get us on the same page. So there's no shame in that either. If families think that having a third party who has a little bit of knowledge and about the disease process that could step in and say, you know, let me, let me see how I can be helpful here. That could certainly enhance communication as well, but yeah. No, I completely agree with that. Plus sometimes I don't know about you, but I just get so focused in on something that I don't see that there's other options or avenues. So having an outside person come in to kind of go, well, you know, well, there are resources in the community. Well, no one had thought about that, you know, or, you know, how do we find in-home care, you know, those sort of things. So I think that's that's an excellent idea, excellent point. As we transition to the end of our conversation, I'd like to know what are some, what's a key piece of advice for families that are starting out as um, in the caregiving role? What would you offer them as um, support or guidance? Yeah, I, I think it would just be don't don't attempt to do it alone. And so even I think I I mean literally with one another, like invite your family, friends, your community to be a part of that, which that makes me think about disclosure of the diagnosis, which is a whole, it's a whole nother topic. Um, but being able to still honor and protect the individual living with dementia, their, their dignity, but also realizing that in order to feel supported, likely you're going to have to disclose that something's going on. Um, so not trying to do it alone. And that means with your family, but also with other professionals. So reaching out to folks who have the privilege to work with a lot of families who are walking a similar but a nuanced path. You know, and with dementia, I think about um, our program's founder, Lisa Gwyther, who always has said, you know, when you meet one person living with dementia, you've met one person living with dementia. There are similarities that we can easily kind of pick out and we can talk about. And at the same time, every situation has its own nuances, but don't try to to do it on your own. Reach out to professionals, reach out to your family and your community, Um, just because I I think bottling it up or holding it in or trying to do it alone um, is really just gonna render you exhausted. Yes, yes. And we unfortunately see too often where caregivers are placed you know, beforehand or they don't make it through the whole duration because caregiving is extremely stressful. And I don't think people realize that um, and how much you need help and support for if you're going to make that journey and yeah. you're going to do, you want to do it successfully, then, you know, you really need to um, 
get some support around you. Form your team, um, find your people, your tribe, whatever you want to call it, and really you know hold on to that and um, lean on that when it becomes extremely difficult. So. Yeah, and I think about our our friends who might be watching this who have family members that are living in long term care residential care communities, and I want to be clear that you are still a caregiver. You are absolutely a caregiver. Your role in advocating for that individual, staying connected to the facility or the community where they're living, all of that requires a lot of work and a lot of energy. And so, you know, keeping in mind, I think sometimes folks can feel defeated if they've had to make that move. And just remind, you are still very much needed and very much involved in the care. So you also need a team. You know, now your team might be within that long-term care community, but you still are coordinating and is the left hand talking to the right hand. I mean, you're still driving a lot of that. So your your work is valuable and meaningful. Absolutely. That's a very valid point. Very valid point. Well, as we transition to the end of this episode, how can someone reach out to you and connect with you? Yeah. Um, so you do not need a referral from any provider or other agency. What you can do is you can call our main line. Um, that number is 919-660-7510. Our website, dukefamilysupport.org, um, has a staff page with um, our four staff and the email addresses. You could email if that's your preferred means of communication. Um, so we're pretty easy to get to. Um, so call or email. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you, Natalie. I really appreciate your time today. Um, that's all the time we have for today. And we thank everyone for watching. And we hope you find the information beneficial and valuable. For, for more information on the programs and services at ADTS, you can visit our website at adtsrc.org. Or you can always give us a call at 336-349-2343. We thank you again for joining us today. Remember that ATS is here to help you and your family to age with dignity and dependence in your home as well as in your community. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to At Home with ADTS. For over 45 years, Aging, Disability, and Transit Services of Rockingham County has focused on enhancing quality of life for individuals by empowering them to achieve optimum health and well-being, independence, and participation in community. To learn more about community-based services, resources, or how to help, visit ADTSRC.org or call 336-349-2343.